So one of our core values here is generations need each other. It's not just a statement that we have on a piece of paper, but it is something that I I deeply believe in. I believe that we all <clears throat> learn and grow <clears throat> together as generations, not just pointing out the deficiencies of each generation, but also the gifts that we bring. Some of the people that I learned the most from around here are 20 and 30 years younger than me. So there's this reciprocity that happens when we do life together. See, one of my, one of my deepest <clears throat> disappointments of, of life is that I personally never had a mentor. Um, now, I did I, I for, t- never, never take for granted that I had a great family. My mom and dad are my, my heroes, my, my role models. Uh, every once in a while, <clears throat> my kids will say to me, Dad, you're becoming just like Grandpa, which is, to me, a huge compliment, really, <clears throat> in so many ways. Uh, and I did have, of course, adults that would give me advice when I, I needed it. Uh, but there was this desire, this longing, really, for someone that was a bit further along in life than myself to come alongside me. Now, it, it wasn't, of course, for lack of trying. I pursued mentors, uh, but none of them ever really stuck. Maybe it was because I was too much or too weird. I, I don't know what the reason was. And so, as a result, I, I found myself stumbling through a lot of life, kind of like walking through a poorly lit room. I came to faith uh, in high school, and in high school I had a great youth group that I was a part of. There were adult leaders in that group that I, I, I think genuinely cared about me, but again, no one really seemed to come alongside me or, or disciple me, and so... I was left to figure a lot of Christianity out for myself. And to be quite frank, the Bible can be a very confusing place for a 15-year-old boy that had never read it. Well, well, from there, I kind of sensed this this tugging, maybe a calling to go into ministry. And so the next step that was presented to me was to go to a Bible college, which I did. On my first day of Bible college, they gave all of the students a test to gauge their biblical understanding up until that point. And man, I failed that test with flying colors. Right? And, I, and in college, I mean, I, I had great professors, but again, not very mentors. And the, the one person that I thought could potentially become a mentor, my, my homiletics professor, which homiletics is the art of preaching, I thought that they could potentially become a mentor, but the true story, <clears throat> that professor of mine went to prison for attempted murder, which that's a sermon story for a different day, uh, but it is true, ironically, which might say a lot about things. So when I, when I started full-time vocational ministry, I again started looking for Someone to mentor me in my early 20s come alongside me, and it just never really happened. And so here I am at 48 years old, still feeling a sense of loss over all this. In the year 2000, uh, a study was called Reveal, which uh, was done by a large church in Illinois and then replicated in 5,000 other churches across the country. 
And one of the questions that was asked in that study is, <clears throat> is what is needed for a sustaining faith that will last a lifetime? And four things were actually discovered, four important things, three of which are very very expected and not really that startling. The first was for, for a faith to be sustained over the course of a lifetime, you've got to regularly interact with the Bible. All right, that makes sense. I mean, the Bible is kind of the core of what we believe. Uh, the second is <clears throat> to have a regular life of prayer. Okay, that, that seems to make sense. The third uh, was to regularly serve, uh, volunteer in either your church or in a community organization. Again, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. But, but the fourth one was the one that stuck out to me the most, <clears throat> and the one that many say is the most important, particularly for younger generations. And it was this. In order to have a, a sustaining faith over a lifetime, it was discovered that you needed to have a significant mentoring relationship with an older person in your church that was not part of your family. And if you had that, you exponentially had the success of staying with your faith over a lifetime. See, generations do in fact need each other. There's a phrase in the Hebrew language that goes something like this, Lador Vador. And it means, quite literally, from generation to generation. When you consider the culture of the people of the Bible, there was a deep value for generational legacy, which is why you see in multiple places in the Bible these lists of genealogies, the part that most of us just skip over because it's filled with names we can't pronounce. We're like, I don't know why it's important that so-and-so begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so. But, but they were important to the people of the Bible because they told a story. They reminded the people of where they come from and where it was that they were going. There, there was also this sense of interdependence upon e- each other. In biblical times, family units lived together. And I'm not just talking about the nuclear family, like extended families all lived together. Mothers and fathers and kids and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins all kind of lived together in the same compound, which for some of us is a, is a terrifying thought, but that's, that's what happened. And they needed each other and they learned from each other and they relied on one another. And that family was then a part of the bigger Jewish community, all of which relied on on each other. But now we come to 21st century Western America, and what we find is that we love to, like, separate, right? And it's not always a bad thing. But if you look around right now in the main sanctuary, most of us are adults that are here. There's a couple kids and some teenagers, but most of us are adults. On our lower level, we have all our children, which is, which is great. I think kids need to learn the Bible in a way they can understand. And we've got a fantastic children's ministry. I couldn't be more excited about what's happening in our kids' ministry. Our team and our staff down there are fantastic. We're at the tail end of a remodel down there. They've kind of made it look like the North Woods. <clears throat> and some of that stuff needed to happen because some of the parts of the lower level were the same as they were in the 80s. And like, at some point, you just need to upgrade some stuff. <clears throat> on, on Thursdays, our 18 to 29 group meets 
uh, as, a, as a group, which is, is fantastic. On Wednesdays, our senior adults come together for their time, which is good on a Wednesday nights. Our, our teenagers come together and we've got all these, all these things happening, all of which is good. But the question I'm asking is, when do we all come together? When did the generations all come together as, as one? Because we do, in fact, need each other. Those of us that are older have something to pass on to the younger generation. And the younger generations actually have a lot to teach those of us that are older and a bit stuck in our ways. I want to turn... Uh, this morning to the 78th Psalm. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. My people hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from old, things we have heard and known. Things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. His power and the wonders he has done. He has decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God, and they would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commandments. This psalm is didactic in nature, meaning there's a piece of it that contains moral instruction, but at the very beginning there's a a tone of patronizing sarcasm in it and it, it, it ends with this 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 challenge this command for one generation to pass down the legacy of faith to the next generation and so one of the, the questions i i pose this morning to all of us is what is it that we are actually passing down and what is it that we're telling the next generation if you follow any kind of Church statistical studies, I know most of you don't wake up in the morning and say, yeah, I'm going to read church statistics, but you know, people in my nerdy world, we, we read those things. And, and it becomes evident very quickly that the American church is declining, and in some places declining rapidly. And to that I ask, why? Why is it happening? And I suppose we could come up with all kinds of answers. Maybe we say, well, you know, because right now the generation we live in is like the most morally corrupt ever. It's the worst it's ever been. And to that I say, I don't think so. I'm not sure that's true. If you look at world history, I mean, there were some periods of history that were pretty morally decadent. I mean, yeah, things aren't perfect, but I mean, no one's feeding me the lions right now, which seems pretty good to me. Or, or maybe, maybe it's because nobody is interested in truth anymore. And I mean, maybe there's some validity to that. But, but I wonder, I just wonder in my heart of hearts if one of the challenges is that instead of passing down life, we're passing down dullness. Maybe one of the great sins of the church 
is that we've become dull and boring. We've lost our capacity to wonder at the amazement of the God that we serve. And so we wake up in the morning and take a deep sigh. (sighs) Just got to get through today. In my routine life, my dull relationships, my dull marriage, and my dull faith. And in doing so, is it possible that we have muffled the voice of God for a generation that desperately needs to hear it? I mean, often as adults, when, when kids start to act up, we say things like, will you just grow up? <laughs> and yet Jesus, Jesus said, if you want to enter into my kingdom, if you want to be my disciple, you actually have to become like children. And children are filled with curiosity. You ever just hung out with a kid? I mean, for for some of us that are older, one of the greatest discipleship moments we could have is just to spend some time with children. I mean, Jesus said you got to become like a child. Children are filled with curiosity and and wonder. When my my daughter was younger, she she loved animals. I think she still does, but she she loved animals. And we like had these rabbits in our backyard, and which are annoying because they tear stuff up and eat all my flowers and. Um, which is fine, but they just kind of kept multiplying and they just, there were more of them. I'm like, finally, I just said out loud one time, where are all these, why are all these rabbits back here? And my daughter said, well, daddy, I keep feeding them. Oh, that makes sense. That's where they all come from. (laughs) What are we telling the next generation? I mean, I want to tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of God. Verse, verse four, we will not hide them from the next generation. From their descendants, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. The mode of Christian instruction that I I received as a teenager was, was all the stuff you were not supposed to do, all of the rules, and as a result, I felt spent a lot of my life feeling guilty. I always felt bad, like God didn't like me, God was out to get me, because I just couldn't keep the rules. And and quite frankly, some of the rules that I was told were so important didn't even make sense to me. Like, it's one thing to pass down a rule, but then to pass down a rule that doesn't make sense, that's even worse. Like, I'll give you just one example. Okay, just humor me. So the youth group I was a part of, and this is, again, in the early 90s. For some reason, in the early 90s, there was this this big controversy in churches over, over music, I guess there's always been controversy in church over music, but, but in this particular, uh, youth group, uh, the, the deal was if you were going to be a good Christian, you could never listen to secular or, or non-Christian music. And if you listened to non-Christian music, you were like a bad person. And which was hard because I had a lot, I love music and I had a lot of music. And I just was like, man, that really? I, and so well, we'd go on youth trips and our youth pastor would tell us, you cannot bring non-Christian music on this trip. Now, this was the days of cassette tapes, right? You remember cassette tapes? Uh, and they would check your cassette tapes to make sure they were good music and, you know, use your Walkman, your big fuzzy earphones. And so one of my friends came up with a brilliant solution. He just opened up the cassette tape of a Christian thing would take the tape out, put a different tape in, and then screw it back together. So when they checked, the cassette said Sandy Patty. 
but the tape was Metallica. So when someone thought we were listening to Sandy Patty, we were really riding the lightning, man. I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> it was a brilliant plan. And, and the reason I say it didn't make any sense is because the, the same group that said we couldn't do that were the same group that were watching rated R movies that had secular music in it. And I'm like, it doesn't make any sense. We pass down all things that don't make any sense. Or, or maybe we, we just kind of rant. Cause I mean, I'm a good ranter about all the bad stuff happening in the world and it's terrible and everything's wrong and this generation's. But what about passing down God's praiseworthy deeds? And when you open the gospels, I mean, Jesus did a lot of good things, right? There's a, there's a story in the gospels about a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector and he was hated by everybody as all tax collectors were because tax collectors were known to be morally reprehensible. They exploited people. They stole money. They just exploited everybody. They were, they were the most vile of vile people. Well, one day Jesus comes to Zacchaeus's village and there's an uproar because there are whispers that, that this man could be the Messiah. And there are crowds of people that are gathered to see Jesus. And Zacchaeus is curious. He wants to see Jesus. But the scriptures say he is shorter in stature. So he climbs a tree so he can get a look at this teacher, this Messiah. And as Jesus walks down the road, he stops dead in his tracks and looks at Zacchaeus and said, Zacchaeus, today I'm having dinner at your house. And so Zacchaeus climbs down the tree, is excited that this teacher would want to go into his home. And Zacchaeus invites all his friends to dinner with Jesus. Now, if you're a morally reprehensible person, you probably have morally reprehensible friends. And they all show up to dinner. The scriptures say that Jesus dined with the tax collectors and the sinners, the worst of the worst. And the story goes on to say that Jesus not only dined, but Jesus reclined at the table. Now, if you're reclining at the table, you're relaxed and having a good time. And Jesus is there with all the dirty sinners. And something happens over the course of the evening by some miraculous work of grace. Zacchaeus says, I'm going to, I am going to pay back. All that I've stolen, I'm going to undo all the bad things I've done. And Jesus, leaning back, says, ah, salvation has come to this house. What a story about the amazing grace of God. Or what about, what about the disciples that Jesus called? Those that he called to be his inner 12? They weren't the best of the best. They were the ordinary of the ordinary. There was nothing spectacular about any of his disciples. They were all ordinary people. And yet, they went on to change the whole world. The scripture says they turned the world upside down. One of Jesus' first converts was a woman named Mary of Magdalene, a woman of the night. Those that men whispered about in secret places. And yet somehow she capture the heart of Jesus, he extended his love and mercy and grace so much so that in the end, Mary Magdalene was one of the first people to witness the resurrection of Jesus and became the first person alive to proclaim the resurrection. And then, of course, there's Jesus' interactions with children and the way he said, let the children come to me. Don't shoo them away. Let, let the children come to me. And he places his hands on them and he blessed them. 
at the end of his life as Jesus is being actively crucified, as the spikes are being driven into his hands and feet, his prayer is, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Can you imagine being actually, being tortured and then praying for the person actively torturing you? And as Jesus hung there in unexplainable pain, a criminal who was on his cross because he committed an actual crime said, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. There was no altar call. There was no repentance. There was no asking. Jesus just said today, what a story. And God has had mercy on me over and over and over and over and over. I think those stories need to get done. Not just rules that force 16-year-olds to break open and vandalize Sandy Patty tapes because someone's made a rule somewhere. And are, are we telling the next generation of his power? Verse four. All of his creative power. I mean, think of the brilliant mind of God. I came across this photograph this week. And when I saw it, I was like, wow, I mean, that, not only is it amazing, but, but and the photographer did a great job capturing it, but, but the artist is God himself. With stroke of his hand, created a canvas that no human could fathom. Or what about this image, this, this creature? I, I mean, what, what was happening in the mind of God as every detail was formed and fashioned? I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 4, verse 17. The same God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. With the word of his mouth, God created the world out of nothing and he hung it on nothing. Wow. Now we get so caught up in arguments about how it happened, that we lose the wow of it happening. The same book, the Apostle Paul continues writing, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. So that same God who gives life to the dead and calls those things that do not exist as though they did, he lives in me. He lives in you, that same power. When my my son Ryan was born, he was a preemie. He was a month early. When we took him home, he was four pounds, nine ounces. And when he was born, he was an emergency C-section and so when he was placed on the examination table, my, my wife was wheeled awake. You know, they drugged her up. And so I'm with the doctor and my newborn son. And the doctor comes over to me with a somber face. And you're like, some doctors aren't good at hiding it. And he just had this face. And I thought, uh-oh. And he s- said to me, he said, Mr. Balanci, um, I have some concerns. Your son has some pretty serious symptoms. And I'm I'm afraid there's... There's neurological damage. He needs to go to the NICU right now. And so I followed the nurse and I wheeled my newborn son to the neonatal intensive care unit. 
of a hospital in Colorado Springs and uh, got down there and I was by myself because only one person could go in. I sat there with this newborn baby, just terrified. I asked some people in my church to pray and I'm just asking God, Lord, have mercy on, on me and my family. And uh, they took him away. They did CAT scans and ultrasounds and brain scans and all this stuff. For hours he was gone and finally he, they came back and they set him down and just sitting there with him and a few hours later the doctor came back and he said, uh, so Mr. Bellani, I, I just really can't explain this to you. He said, but uh, all the scans are normal and all the symptoms have gone away. I don't know what happened, but you can go back to the, to the nursery. Now, I suppose it could be a coincidence. But is it possible? Is it possible that the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are as though they are not had something to do with it? Now you may say, well, that's nice, Mike, but my story didn't end that neat and tidy. Where was God in my story? No, and I get it. Because prior to that story, we lost two. But that same God that gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were gave us sustaining power in the midst of grief. Because see, when the life of Christ fills you, I mean, think about that for just a moment. Think about what it is that we're saying when we gather to worship. That when the life of Christ fills me, I have the power, Jesus said, to live life to the full. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. There's another story of God's power in the Gospels. It's a familiar story. I spoke about it a couple weeks ago. Jesus had just fed the 5,000 with a couple loaves and some fish, and he sent his disciples off from the Sea of Galilee and says, Jesus went away to a quiet place because I just think he was tired of everybody. He just needed a break. And so he went, took a break, and the disciples are out on the, the sea, and at night Jesus comes walking on the water, which is not something people usually do, but he's walking on the water, and he comes in, and the disciples are afraid, and Jesus said, it's me. And Peter says, his disciples, Jesus, if it's you, tell me to come on the water. Tell me to walk to you on the water. And I can just, like I can almost hear the other disciples thinking, oh, Peter, what did you do? I hope you brought a towel. Why would you do that? Jesus says, come. And Peter steps out of the boat and starts to walk on the water. And where we usually leave it is we say that, you know, then Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and he started to sink. And Jesus said, you have a little faith, pulled him up and put him back in the boat. And poor Peter took his eyes off Jesus, which is true. But I also want to say, he's the only one that got out of the boat. And while the disciples, I don't know what the conversation was like, maybe they threw a towel at him and said, ah, Peter, we told you, why did you even do that? You're all soaking wet now. But if I was Peter, I would have been like, yeah, but I took Three steps on the water. (laughs) And I will tell the next generation, verse 4, of the wonders he has done. The theologian A.W. Tozer once wrote, we cover our deep ignorance with words, but we are ashamed to wonder we are afraid to whisper mystery. Now, the, the word 
wonder here is a direct reference to the Exodus when God rescued his people from slavery in in Egypt and God displayed his wonders. Let my people go and they went. I hope we never lose our capacity to wonder. I mean, I mean, think about for just a moment what it is that we say we believe. See, what we say we believe is that God created the world with his voice. He spoke and it was so. We believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, a medical impossibility. We also say that we believe that this same God was crucified, died, but then he rose from the dead. That's what we say we believe. Wow, I mean, that's a lot to wonder about. And maybe the greatest wonder of it all is the God who created the world out of nothing, the God who was born of a virgin, the the, the God who was resurrected from the dead has chosen to be my friend. And Jesus said, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. So is it too much to ask that we would pass down something a bit more captivating to the next generation than some rules, some politics, and you gotta go to church or you're in trouble? May we tell the stories of faith with gladness, what God has not only done in the Bible, but what God has done in my life. And when we're asked hard questions, may those questions be welcomed, not with cheap answers and platitudes, but something a bit more healthy. Because listen, in healthy families, questions are welcomed, and when kids ask questions and their questions are welcomed, they feel welcome. And yeah, sometimes as adults, we have to say, I don't, I don't know the answer. And sometimes questions make us uncomfortable. You ever been asked an uncomfortable question? Let me tell you about an uncomfortable question that I was asked. I used to work in a high school as a substitute teacher years ago in my 20s. I had to supplement my income because the church I was at was small and couldn't pay me full-time, so I was a substitute teacher in a local high school. And if you've ever substitute taught, I mean, it goes something like this. They call you at like five in the morning. Hey, can you come in today? Yep, I'll be there. You go to the office, they hand you your assignment for the day, science, math, English, whatever. Well, one day I got the call. Hey, can you work? Yep, I'll be there. Got to the office. They handed me the folder today. Mike, Mr. Belanti, you are doing sex ed. Whoa, isn't like, what about math? I mean, <laughs> Spanish? <laughs> Nope, sex ed, and so I'm like, fine, you know what, whatever. I take the stuff, go to the classroom, open up the lesson plan for the day. Sexually transmitted diseases. Oh, the questions I got, the uncomfortable questions of the day. When someone asks us an uncomfortable question about our faith, are we willing to enter into the question with wonder? with curiosity, and with hope. You see, when I think about all those years that I didn't have, like, a mentor, I decided that maybe I could give back something I didn't have. And so the years I spent as a youth pastor, which was about seven years, I started an internship program for teenagers. I actually partnered with the local high school, and they got partial credit to work in our internship program at our church and I spent half a day a week half a day several days a week with these teenagers and I would 
talk with them, mentor them. They'd work with me and do different tasks for me. And I still have relationships with most of those kids. Uh, I've performed uh, one of their weddings. And one of these, one of these, one of the kids that was in my my internship program actually went into ministry. And it's ironic because this kid, he gave me the most grief of anyone else when he was a teenager. But he went into ministry, and a couple of months ago, he just, for the very first time, became the senior pastor of his very first church. And he reached out to me, and he goes, hey, I'm doing this. I don't know what I'm doing. Would you mentor me through this? And I said, of course I would, because generations need each other. You've, You've got a story to tell. You do. You have a life to share. And so may we tell the praiseworthy deeds of God. May we, may we talk about and live in his power and not lose our ability and capacity to wonder. From generation to generation, we will tell the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. I'm thankful, oh God, for this church. I'm thankful for the desire that we have not only to serve the next generation, but to come together as generation to generation to generation, investing in one another, coming alongside one another, learning from each other, and supporting each other. I'm thankful for that kind of church. God, may we tell, may we tell the story, may we live the life, and may we experience the power. In Jesus' name, amen.